This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. And welcome to the show. Welcome. Welcome. What's happening in your life and world? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Things are plodding along uh, in a very boring manner in this timeless time of life right now. But it is spring here in Australia, which has been really lovely. The last few days, the warm weather, the sunshine has felt so revitalizing. Yes. I sat in my backyard on the weekend in sunshine and I did my taxes. And uh, you know what? There's worse places to do your taxes than in the sunshine on a beautiful day of spring, the first proper day of spring, and it was delightful. Party tax time. Party <laughs> tax time. Uh, yes, I enjoyed the warm weather thoroughly. It went back to kind of shitty weather today, didn't it? It's not, it's not shitty. Yeah. It's still not freezing, which is important. Yeah. But you know what? The other day when it was really nice and warm, it was also windy. And yes. this is the thing. Like I have a friend that always says she's always talking about how wind ruins everything. And it's true. <laughs> it does. Winch does. It ruins everything. <laughs> hey, but you know what? That's kind of probably relevant. Vaguely oh, relevant. It actually is wind ruining everything to an extent. Yeah, there's a <laughs> lot of potential for wind to ruin things in today's episode, actually. <laughs> well, uh, but go. also actually for wind to be of great benefit as well. Excellent. Know, it depends on the way that you look at things. Yeah. Glass half full, glass half empty. How do you we- feel about wind? <laughs> <laughs> it also depends what kind of wind, really. Not gas, you know? but wind. <laughs> yeah. We are heading to the skies today. Yes. Woo. We are flying high. We are with a barnstorming aviatrix. Yes. This week. Do you know what uh, what either of those things mean, Alicia? Yes, I do know. Well, aviatrix speaks for itself, essentially, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Suggests I do really love the suffix. I love an ix. Yeah. An X, you know, like I, as the feminine form, if, you, if you're going to feminize a word, yeah. let's put X on the end. It's so much better than a or yeah. S. It's nice. Although it? I do like the word murderous and I do like the word <laughs> seductress. I do like those S's. But what about you could have murderix? Mur- yeah, murderix or seductrix. Seductrix is nice. <laughs> oh, I like that quite a lot. Adultrix. Ooh. No, so an aviatrix is obviously a lady a aviator. A, a, bird. a bird lady. A bird well, lady. A, aviary. What's the root word there? Avia. Uh, anyway, we know etymologically. <laughs> avian. The avia, yeah, avian, sure, to do with birds. And yeah. she was actually called the bird lady because, of course, I am talking about ah. Bessie Coleman. Yeah. We've done that thing again. Uh, she was the bird woman and yep. she was a bird lady. She, she flew. She was an aviatrix and she was a barnstormer. Do you know what a barnstormer is, Alicia? Um, so I think barnstorming essentially has to do with like tricks, doesn't it? Like basically the different tricks that you do and maybe comes from at a mm. guess flying through actual barns. Kind of, yeah. Back in the beginning. Yeah. 
Pretty much. Like it is, yes, aerial tricks. And they usually took place on farms where you've got a lot of land Mm, uh, mm -hmm. space for barrel rolls and what have you. I will explain it a little bit more. I do also like that a barnstormer could be like another, like a more rural stormtrooper. Yeah. Yeah, that's you right. Know? A stormtrooper that's some like dressed like a farmer. Yeah, like yeah. a hay suit. <laughs> I don't but know also how the helmet can't works. shoot straight, you know? Yeah, that's right. None of them can. Like mm. yeah. Obviously you've seen that report that's about the amount of shots that the stormtroopers <laughs> make compared to the amount of shots that the rebels make. And now the stormtroopers are just terrible, terrible shots. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen the specific report, but there I is do a, know there the is a report. Stereotype. It exists. <laughs> I have another question for you now. Do you yes. know what a flying circus is? No. Oh. Other than Monty Python's flying circus. I mean not the Python kind. Okay, so we're gonna get to a flying circus. Actually Okay, here we go, Alicia. I want you to shut your eyes. Okay. And, and just picture this. Okay. It's the early 1920s Got or it. maybe a bit before, whatever. Yeah. You're recovering from the trauma of war, a global pandemic <laughs> and a global economic crisis. I don't know. You're going to have to really stretch your imagination here. That's right. So you decide to take the family out for some good old-fashioned clean fun, mm-hmm. some much-needed downtime. There's a paddock down the road where it's safe to uh, have some socially distanced outdoor fun. Some folks are gathering there. Uh, so you huddle up with the fam. You've got a picnic. Someone cracks their flask of prohibition gin. Everyone's having a good time. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, biplanes zooming across the blue-blue sky. There's a lot of them. They are left over from the war. Uh, There's a lot of bored pilots out of work, skills to burn. They're barrel rolling. They're spinning. They're looping. They're scooping down right over your heads. And then they're going back up again. And then they're doing another barrel roll. And then, and then, Alicia, (gasps) someone steps out of the motherfucking plane and they begin to walk like a tightrope walker (gasps) on a rope along the winds of the plane. Is it a bird? Oh is God. it a plane? Technically, yes, but that's not what we're paying attention to. It is a wing walker. Is it an ex-serviceman pilot? No. Is it a woman? Yes. Is it Bessie Coleman? Oh, my God, yes, it is. It's acrobatics in the sky. Oh, my God. Amazing. Do you know what? You said that scene so well, but do you know what I spent a lot of that scene doing? No. Trying to decide what I would be wearing? Mmm. Because it's the 1920s and mm-hmm. it was important to me to like get your outfit. To get my outfit right. Hopefully you had head. a nice hat. Yes. And some stockings. Yep. Anyway, yep. beautiful, beautifully so, done. That's basically our story in a nutshell. That's Bessie Coleman. End of podcast. I was sitting under a nice shady tree too. <laughs> In my imagination. You were too thrilled to sit down, Alicia. It was much too exciting. You were on your feet and you were cheering. Oh, yeah, that's true. I was also yep. on my feet. Yeah. Far my, too exciting. In my nice Mary Jane shoes. So this is the spectacular, spectacular life that we're talking about of, of Bessie Coleman. I'm sure she's not a stranger figure mm-hmm. to any anyone really. She's, well, let's be honest, she's quite famous. She was the first black woman to earn her pilot's license in the US, actually anywhere in the world. She oh. broke a bunch of records. Uh, so we're going to go back in time. We're going to see how... This woman ended up on the wings of a plane, 10,000 feet in the air. Maybe not 10,000. That's quite high. (laughs) I don't know. What a feat. Anyway, we're going to go back to 1892. Yes. Atlanta, Texas, 
Okay. Not Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta, Texas, to George Coleman, who is a black and Cherokee man, and Susan Coleman, who are living their lives as sharecroppers together with their nine children thus far. Because then along comes their tenth (gasps) of 13. Oh, dear Lord. (laughs) Elizabeth. So it's this big bustling well actually it's not a big house it's a one-roomed house but it's a bustling house and the family farm cotton for a living they're sharecroppers so it's not easy work at all and we have talked about the system of sharecropping before so we touched on this with Ida B Wells remember yes yes I do yeah so sharecropping is a form of tenant farming where the landowner usually, oh, I, not usually, pretty much 99% Always. of the time I would say, yeah. it's a white guy who leases, and I use that term loosely, land to farmers who work in exchange for a portion of the harvest. But these contracts were very, very restrictive. And so often families lost out if they had a bad harvest, for example, and actually went into a lot of debt to these farmers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time... Things like their food and their clothing were taken out of their portion of the harvest. So it was very difficult to – like when you're being paid in a harvest, it's very hard to actually accumulate Wealth. capital yeah. in any way. Mm. You know, you can't really – even though you're technically independent, you don't have many means to move yeah. away from that. And you're that not system. really getting like cash in your pocket. That's not really yeah. what you're getting. So you can't exactly. accumulate cash wealth to spend mm-hmm. elsewhere. Yeah, or even to save up for anything that your family might need Mm. or to, you know, it's very difficult to move around. But the family did move to, now I am not going to be able to pronounce this word, so please forgive me, Waxahachie, Texas? Waxahachie? How do you spell it? I don't know. Sorry, Texans. Uh, W-A-X-A-H-A-C-H-I-E. Waxahachie? I actually didn't even follow that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, sure. Something Another like that. Place it, that Texas. sounds like a Nahuatl word, actually. It, it kind of does. Yeah, yeah, it looks like it. Yeah. Mm. And it was here Bessie started attending school. And this was a segregated, you know, single mm. room mm. school. But she, I mean, like so many of our TV women, she was very good at it. She excelled particularly at maths. She was a, a STEM girl at heart. <laughs> she also taught herself to read. Which she loved. She said that she found a brand new world in the written <gasps> word. A whole new world. Yeah. Carry Thank on. you. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> well, that also involves flying, but on a carpet. Mm, she was a big fan of Aladdin, particularly <laughs> yeah, the original 1992 version as opposed to the remake. Yeah, correct. Obviously, because she's a smart girl. Mm. When she was eight, her father left the family, though, because he... He wanted to return to, and I say this in quotation marks, Indian country, because I apologize, I'm not actually sure what the appropriate terminology is, but that's how he referred to it, Indian country. Mm-hmm. And he asked Susan and the kids to come with him, but Susan didn't want to. Um, she wanted her children to stay in school and she wanted to encourage them to have the means And the opportunities to sort of be able to better themselves and get out of this kind of sharecropping life. And so he went alone, leaving her to support the children by herself. There was nine surviving children of the 13. Wow. And this inspired Bessie to really double down in her studies. Obviously, it wasn't easy and things were really tight. She also had to take time out of school every season to help the family with the harvest 
But her teachers as well as her mother were really, really supportive. And I also think it's like important to give a little shout out to all of the supportive mothers that we've had (laughs) in this bloody show. Because like, I feel like there's actually quite a few, like a large number of women that we've talked about in the podcast who were encouraged by their mothers to go to school because their mothers wanted a better life for them. You know, this story of like education being your way out is not uncommon. Uh, So I just want to give a little shout out to all the mothers who encourage their daughters, you know, like really. And you know what? We can put our own mothers in that as well, you know. Yay for mothers. Yay for (laughs) mums. Because Coleman's mum, she ensured that – you know, Bessie and her sisters and siblings rather, not only received an education, but that they knew about a lot of the really big pivotal, you know, black figures mm. in the world, mm-hmm. particularly obviously in the US at the time, such as Harriet Tubman and Booker T. Washington, because she wanted them to kind of be these figures of inspiration yeah. and aspiration for her yeah. children. Mm-hmm. So Coleman was able to finish school and she enrolled in Langston University in Oklahoma However, because money was so tight, she had to leave. She only completed one term before she had to go home. But then she moved to Chicago and instead she enrolled at a cosmetology school. Cosmetology? Yes, which I don't even think I realised existed in the 19-teens. No. How? Yeah. I suppose it makes sense. She became a manicurist in the South Side. Really? Yes. That was an unexpected turn of events. <laughs> yeah. So she was working in the salon, doing people's nails. Yeah, right. That was her thing. That was her job. Look, it, it paid the bills and that was great, but she didn't love it. She wasn't like, this is not the thing that she wants to do her whole life. Fair enough. Yeah. And she wasn't doing those really like intricate, like little pictures of Disney princesses that they do. <laughs> she might have. She might have. She might have. Because remember, she loved Aladdin. That's right. Well, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I remember when I was in India, I had the most intense little tiny miniature painting painted on my thumbnail oh, did you? ever. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It, it was amazing. Anyway, that was a while ago. So anyway, so she's in the salon. She's painting tiny miniatures on people's fingernails and in she's not really in comes her brother, John, and he had been in France during the war. Okay. So he was in the army and he came into the salon. He had had a bit to drink, so he was a bit loose and he starts talking and he's like, Bessie, look at you, doing nails. You're better than this. This is shit life. Not that there's Bessie. anything wrong with doing nails, by the way, no, for those, no, for those out there who do do yes, nails. Thank you. <laughs> but John, he's just being a bit of a dick. He is. And mm-hmm. he's like, women in France, man, they can do anything. Women in France, they can even fly planes. <gasps> Which was true because women in France did fly planes. <laughs> but the idea of that in the US, I mean, okay, I'm going to get to the context of this in a moment. But Bessie was just like, wow, well, that is interesting. But as then I guess John followed this up with, you know, for black women like you, though, Bessie, don't get your hopes up. It's not going to happen. Well, what the you come in talking about it then you did well he was teasing her he was just like this is shit your shit women in france are amazing and american women are shit wow <laughs> thanks thing. for that 
John, yeah, yeah. whatever your name is. She decided that she's going to prove him wrong. She was very inspired Good. by this. Actually, this is a tactic. I think I've talked about this before. This is another mothering tactic. This is my mothering tactic I'm going to use. Instead yeah. of positive reinforcement where I tell my children <laughs> they can do anything, I'm going to tell them that they're shit <laughs> and they can't do anything and then that will inspire them to prove me wrong. They're going to rebel. You're going to That's purposefully right. re- raise rebels yeah. by being a bitch. Yeah. And then one your... day when they come back to me and they're like, see, mum, I did it. I'll be like, yeah, and you know why? Because I told you you couldn't. <laughs> and then they'll understand. I think that there's great scope there to do tremendous amounts of psychological harm. <laughs> I don't know All that right. I can advocate it. But look, whatever works for you, man. Who am I to judge your parenting yeah, thanks. style? Yeah. <laughs> you know? There's too much judging of motherhood in this world. That's you true. do you. Yeah. Yeah. I just I don't condone it. Okay. No worries. <laughs> but maybe hey, that was his it's theory. Worked you know? in the past. Maybe it's worked in the past. Maybe it was reverse psychology. Maybe he thought that by telling well, her she was shit, she would excel. <laughs> Maybe. I think, look, it worked either way because she went home and she decided to look up this whole world of women in aviation thing. And she very soon took a particularly keen interest in the lives of two women, uh, Raymond Delaroche, who was the very first woman to earn her pilot's license in 1909. And I will give you one guess, Alicia, where she is from. I'm going to say France. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's absolutely correct. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. She is from France. And Harriet Quinby, who was the first American woman to earn her pilot's license. And so we've also kind of talked a little bit in the past about the difference between France in the 1920s yes. and the US in the 1920s. This has actually come up a lot yeah. because there's a very good reason why so many of our deviant women have moved to France from the US. <laughs> like, At this period of these black women. Yeah. Like Josephine Baker moved to France in the 1920s because she was like, fuck you guys, this place is a hellhole. <laughs> and there was also other white women, but particularly lesbian women who, you know, found a havens mm. in France. So France was, I suppose, Far more progressive at the time than yeah, the US. Yeah, incredibly liberal, like in comparison, not just to America, but, you know, many other parts of the world. I, I mean, yeah. Europe in general. In terms of like, yeah, race, sexuality, mm. gender, all kinds of things. And so Coleman, I guess she knew that as a black woman, she was facing not just double triple, quadruple mm. the amount of barriers. Because if it was hard to be a white woman and become a pilot, it was basically impossible to be a black woman and become a pilot. And she realised this pretty quickly herself because she tried to enlist as an aviation student in the US uh-huh. to get some pilot licence. And remember, this is post-war, so there are actually a lot of ex-pilots just kind of hanging around yeah. <laughs> without much else to do. Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of cheap planes being sold but surprise surprise no one would take her on as a student yeah well what yeah exactly no surprises there. <laughs> no but I guess as her brother kind of <laughs> alluded to she did know that there was a place that might accept her and so she decided she was going to you know just totally commit herself to this dream of becoming a pilot. So she got herself a second job as a waitress at a chili restaurant so that she could save up some money. And meanwhile, 
you know, she started kind of hitting up a few potential sponsors. In 1920, she met Robert S. Abbott, a black philanthropist and the owner of the newspaper, the Chicago Defender. And he was thrilled by the idea of a black woman wanting to fly and suggested to her that she go to Europe to make her dream come true. Mm. And so together with Jesse Binger, a banker, they kind of helped to fund her way there. Uh, so to prepare herself for this, you know, hopefully inevitable leap, she took up French. Uh, oh, yeah. She studied at the Berlitz Languages School in Chicago. And then she set off on a steamer, the SS Imperator, the largest passenger ship in the world at the time, by Ooh. the way, for Paris. And at that time, it took just a week to get from New York to Paris, by the way, on a steamer. Oh, so much time for, like, Sexy liaisons. In the, I in that period. have a dream that in a past life, I just took a steamliner yep. somewhere and just had a really great. I mean, actually, okay. What I'm saying is, my dream of a past life is Titanic pre the ship sinking. <laughs> uh, that's funny, but they sound like great. That's interesting though, because that's how my parents got around the world when yeah back when in, they were steamliners. Like my mum came mm-hmm. to Australia on a ship. It took like three weeks for her yep. to get here. I love the idea of travelling overseas on a ship. Like I've got these old albums and, and journals of my great aunt who did the same thing. It's f- And she had an affair with a fucking Egyptian sheik. Yeah. I bet you've got a story about that. I do. And that's exactly <laughs> right. Like there is such a romantic idea about mm-hmm. like you're all stuck on this travelling mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You know, so. And I love the idea of that. They'd have like, you know, the bands and you go out for dinner every oh. night and you dance and. I don't feel like this is what oh. modern cruises are like though. No, that's exactly the problem. I'm like, I know I could go on a cruise now, but it's yeah. just not going to be the same. It's not the same. It's not going to have the same class factor. I don't mean that in like a classist way. I mean, just like <laughs> I want a classy steamliner <laughs> to have my affair with the Egyptian sheikh. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, <laughs> so if somebody wants to sponsor us to, you know, make that happen, then get in fabulous. touch. Fabulous. <laughs> you can join Patreon for as little as $2 a month. <laughs> and you can fund our Steamliner dreams. <laughs> anyway, so Cohen is on the Steamliner. She arrives in Paris and she, again, starts applying to aviation schools. Now, the first aviation school that she applied to actually did reject her. Oh. But... Not for the reasons that you are thinking, Alicia. Uh-huh. It was actually because two of their female students had recently died in accident. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I would want to be rejected by that school too. Yeah. Thank you very much. Like, mm, I don't want to go to that school. We are not doing this again for a while. But in November 1920, she was accepted into the Codron Brothers School of Aviation and she started training right away. It was a nine-mile walk from her lodgings to the school. What is that? What's that? Nine miles is quite far. That's like 14.4 k's. Good job. But, yes, that is quite the walk. It is. That is quite the walk. It is. And um, she was there for seven months where she learned to fly in a Newport Type 82, a 27-foot biplane with a 40-foot wingspan. I'm going to pretend I know what that is. 
<laughs> there's a lot of these kinds of details in researching the story like this plane with this wingspan and this type of engine i'm like okay that's that's great I but biplanes any of this biplanes are the ones with the double wing things mm. though aren't they mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. that a biplane where that's that's why they're called biplanes yes yeah. that's right yeah. yeah yeah so you're picturing the correct i am picturing thing. the correct Pic- thing just yeah just picture one of those old-fashioned yeah old-timey planes yeah. with the, the two propellers and the glass hatch yeah, where you sit. And, yeah, I actually went in a lot of those. When I was a kid, I used to visit a lot of the, like, airfields oh, yeah. because my pop is an aircraft mechanic. Oh. He was in the Air Force. And he loves planes, obviously, because he's an aircraft mechanic in the Air Force. And we would go to not, I mean, there's not, like, a million airfields around Adelaide. No. But I do have very vivid memories of traveling to quite a few of them and getting to, like, climb in all of the old, Thank like, you. 1920s and 30s planes and uh, watching them fly them at air shows and all that kind of stuff. So I do actually, even though I don't know any of the names of these specific types of planes, I have sat in a lot of them and pretended <laughs> to fly them. You may even have sat in one of these ones that... <laughs> Who knows? I could ask Pop, but he probably wouldn't remember. Oh, but well. yeah, <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> so this plane, though, that she's learning to fly in, apparently the steering consisted of a vertical stick about kind of a baseball bat size, which was placed in front of the pilot. And then there was a rudder bar under the pilot's feet. And that's how you're steering it, just with this giant stick (laughs) under your feet. A joystick. A joystick, yeah. Yeah. And so along with there being no steering wheel, there was also no brakes. To stop the plane, she would have to land and then drag a metal skid on the tail along the ground. Oh, really? So, like, you, yes. you turf it out the side. You, like, yeah. turf out your Just anchor. Because like, oh it's like a rake, like, slowing you down as you're, you're going. Oh, holy shit. No wonder people had so many accidents. <laughs> no, no wonder those two other women had died. Yeah. Lo- oh, dude, there's going to be a lot of that a in lot more. some okay. of these stories. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, that's to be expected. But. Along with these kind of, you know, safety hazards, <laughs> you know, I guess you're just like, well, you know what? Fuck it. While we're up here, we may as well learn some loop the loops yes. uh, and some banking and some tailspins. And so she's learning all – she's not just learning how to fly. She's learning tricks. She's learning how to do all of these maneuvers that I guess a lot of the male pilots were trained in because they were trained in them to use them mm. defensively yeah. in the war. Yeah. You know, like the reason why barrel rolls have become an aviation sort of flying circus trick is because you learn to do a barrel roll in order to escape enemy fire, Yeah, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. So she's also learning these things. And so on June 15, 1921, she received her pilot's license from the Federation Aeronautique Internationale. Ooh, that sounds fancy. And she was, as I said, the first black woman to earn her pilot's license. And she was also the first American pilot to earn an international pilot's license. Wow. So, boom, there you go. So the first anywhere in the world, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what year did you say this is? 1921. Yeah, right. Yeah. So she was like 30. Yeah. Actually, she lied on her license and she made herself a few years younger. Ah, oh, well, hey. She was quite... Take a liberty. Quite one for a little bit of an exaggerated story. <laughs> she didn't mind, like, dropping a few extra 
sprinkly details in on the top, you know, yep. like yep. Mm-hmm. like sprinkles on an ice cream, a little bit of extra on there. So she did shave a few years off of her age on her international pilot's license. I don't know how much you'd get away with that these days. Yeah, I don't think not. you can just shave a few years off of your license. Yeah, probably not so much now. No. no, no. So after this, she um, she returned to the US where the Associated Press labelled her a, quote, full-fledged aviatrix. Hey, that's actually quite a nice sounding thing. I like it. Full-fledged aviatrix. I wish I was a full-fledged aviatrix. You could star. Oh, my God. If I went for my pilot's licence, I think my mother would have a heart attack and die. Oh, well, then don't do that then. You know. No. no. What I would need to do is get my licence and then tell her that I got my licence and then she'd be okay. I'd only go and get a license if I could do it in some kind of Top Gun fashion with like a young Tom Cruise type scenario going on. Mm -hmm. I do remember years ago when I worked at Vodafone, a young Englishman came in to get a new phone because he had just recently arrived in Australia and he was a pilot in the Air Force and I remember him just being... The most handsome man I had like ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) And he was was a pilot and he was English and he was so handsome. And I still remember that to this day. (laughs) You do. He made such an impression. (laughs) Well, that's what I imagine pilot school's like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Surely. It's just Just full of filled with handsome men. (laughs) Yeah. Surely. Anyway. However, well, the fact that we're already gendering these handsome pilots as male is indicative of the fact that this is a very, very, very gendered, very, 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 very gendered industry. And back then, particularly the, well, I mean, the US didn't allow women at all, no matter, you know, white or black, to work as commercial pilots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that there was much of a commercial industry, because this is the 1920s, yeah. planes couldn't fly very far and they couldn't fit any passengers in them, but there was a fledgling commercial industry beginning. And the reason why women weren't allowed to be commercial pilots was because they weren't allowed to pilot passengers. So they oh. were allowed to fly, but they were not allowed to fly with anyone else. Okay. And so does this still apply to Bessie in France as well? No, no, only in the US, okay. right. as far as I know. Mm-hmm. So that meant that, yeah, she couldn't do commercial aviation for the small opportunities that did exist there, but she could perform stunt flights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason for this is because women were believed to be too frail and nervous, so their frail and nervous nature made them more prone to accidents than men, and they were seen to be too scatterbrained to master complex technology and so emotional that any crisis would lead them into a catastrophic panic. Ah, oh, well, that sounds and about so, accurate. Yeah. yeah, ironically, this belief actually, you know, this belief that they're too scatterbrained and nervous for flight, which is super dangerous, therefore we can't allow them to have any passengers, actually led to women doing something far more dangerous, <laughs> which is barnstorming yeah, because right. this was the thing that they could do. That's and so ridiculous. barnstorming, as I've mentioned 
is the art of stunt flying. And it became particularly popular in the 1920s because the end of the war, there's all these extra planes lying around. They're not being used anymore. A lot of pilots who aren't flying anymore. Um, so the US had manufactured a lot of Curtis JN4 biplanes, which were also otherwise known as Jennies. And after the war, these were sold off in bulk, really cheap. So for like $300. And I know that's... You get yourself a biplane. Exactly. 300 old-timey dollars is still a lot of dollars, but it's com- <laughs> for a plane. Yeah. It's not much. And at the same time, there were also a lot of new private plane manufacturing companies that now needed to find a new market at the mm. end of the war. So as I said, the potential for commercial aviation hadn't really been realized yet. That was still kind of a few years away and also still too dangerous to really transport passengers because there was a lot of planes that just sort of fell out of the sky. <laughs> a lot. Oh, God. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. <laughs> Don't yeah, say really, that. It really was, though. Shit. I mean, like... Aviation itself is only 20 years old. Like people have only been flying for 20 years. The whole concept of flight though still blows my mind. The fact that we get those big giant metal tin cans up in the air for as long as we do traveling at the speeds that they do, that it just blows my mind. Every time I fly and I fly not as – don't fly that much – anymore but you know <laughs> seriously no one it's one of those things i think you really have to appreciate that a hundred years ago like this was fantasy stuff yeah oh know? definitely yeah and now we just go in those fart boxes <laughs> and we sit in those fart boxes and they take us from one place to the next and then when we get there we don't realize we've been sitting in other people's farts <laughs> or For all that germ time. boxes, germ incubators. Yes, more important. That's I think right. we're all aware now of how much planes are just infested yes. with recirculating germs. That's going to change the way I fly forever. I think. <laughs> Delightful. Uh, So, yeah, we don't have big jumbo jets yet. So the one kind of main commercial activity that made these planes kind of viable and attractive to buy was barnstorming. The other two key markets were mail delivery. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, smuggling, obviously. Oh, yeah, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And often a plane owner would do all three. Yeah, well, why not? you got to hedge your bets. Bit of barnstorming. I'll drop the mail off on my way home and then I'll just hop over to Cuba and uh, get some cigars and yep. smuggle them back in. Smuggle some goods. Drop up some more mail, do a few barrel rolls. Easy. Yeah. Being a smuggler would be a good job. Would you be a smugglix if you're a female, <laughs> a female smuggler? A smugglix? <laughs> I want to be a smugglix. That's what I want to be. It sounds oh, like a creature out of Harry Potter, but I want to be does. a smugglix. Yes, or right. a sm- smuggleress doesn't really work no. either. No. Smugglex it is. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad we've decided on that. So your past life, you're a smugglex. Yes. And you're going to hook up with the handsome pilot. Handsome young Tom who's Cruise. Who's teaching you how to fly that biplane. Absolutely. go on some kind of jungle adventure together where your plane will crash in the jungle and you'll have to survive as you find your oh, way no. to a village yeah. for help. And there'll be... So much sexy time with young Tom. Sorry, anyway. Um, That's a different story. (laughs) I just want everyone to know that I am defining young Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise is only good to a point. And then after that. Of course. Yeah. 
I'm going to talk about barnstorming again. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to keep talking about Tom Cruise? All right, fine. I want to talk about Charles Lindbergh, right? Remember Charles Lindbergh? Vaguely. Why have we talked about Charles Lindbergh before? Because he is the man after whom the Lindy Hop is named. Oh, that's why we've Remember talked about the Lindy Hop over the Atlantic. Of course. Yes. yes so I do. he was really famous for that first crossing of the Atlantic. And yes, of course, we did talk about this in the Norman Miller episode because the Lindy Hop is named after him. For that reason. So, yeah. So, anyway, most of the um, pilots, like I said, in these first flying circuses, they were just doing those stunts that they had been trained to do in the war, the dog rolls and loops. This had now become the stuff of entertainment and people were super, super, super keen. Obviously, this is thrilling stuff Mm. in the 1920s. There's nothing else like it. And I guess it also kind of brings some of that spectacle of the war to home. Yeah. You know? But, I mean, it's still thrilling stuff now like yeah it's still edge of your seat pants wettingly Mm. terrifying and this was before because in the 20s they didn't have any regulations yet right (laughs) so (laughs) you know they could do literally anything they wanted and there was no even like limits on how low they could fly you know so they could really swoop in ride over your head and then zoom back up again. Actually, at the end of the 20s, one of the things that actually kind of led to the downfall of barnstorming a little bit was the introduction of a lot of regulations because there were a lot of crashes, which is Mm. not surprising. And one of those regulations is about the minimum altitude. Yeah, You couldn't go below this certain altitude. It was like, I can't remember what the actual altitude limit was, but basically it meant that you could really no longer see kind of oh, a lot of this spectacle what they were doing yeah right and it also meant a lot of stuff like cuz there was wing walkers you know so wing walkers are people who are walking out on the wings of the plane they even would play tennis <laughs> on the wings of the planes and so this meant that if they can't do that low enough that the audience can actually see it yeah then what's the point and yeah. also well it's always dangerous if you're wing, wing walking but i suppose you only want to do that at a certain altitude you probably don't want to wing walk too high yeah. I, don't know. I don't know but surely you're dead either way well i mean i think you are probably yes. surely it doesn't matter if you fall <laughs> off from really yeah. high or just from a little bit lower like yeah. i feel yeah. like <laughs> you still are fucked if you fall off so That kind of leads me back then to talking about all the women who were doing these amazing stunts because, as I said, these restrictions that were designed to kind of keep women safe (laughs) by not letting them fly because they were far too delicate to man aircraft. Mm. And also, like, when they went upside down, their skirts would fall over their faces. Or their period blood would just get all over them. (laughs) That's right. So many reasons. (laughs) Of course, this actually meant that they really staked a claim in this world of barnstorming. The first female pilot, as I mentioned earlier, was Raymond Delaroche. And Delaroche earned her license from the Aero Club de France, the world's first organization to issue pilot's license. Um, She was the 36th person in total overall Mm -hmm. in the world Mm -hmm. to earn their license. So she's, I think 36 is not terrible. Yeah. As far as things go, like it could be... Hundred in a man's world, in a exactly. man's game, yeah, essentially, yeah. And she was actually originally an actress, and oh. she learnt to fly in a single seat airplane, which meant that she had to fly alone. 
and she was shouted instructions <gasps> from the ground. Oh, what? <laughs> and she'd only ever flown as a passenger once before. <laughs> well, she's in the deep end. Well, she's, yeah, in the deep end in that way. She's also in the deep end in the sense that she was tragically killed in a crash in 1919. Yeah, she and her co-pilot were attempting to land a new kind of experimental plane. Unfortunately, this is not an uncommon story. Mm. Another woman that I want to briefly shout out is Blanche Scott, who went to France to represent for the Americans, and she earned her pilot's license in 1910. She had been a cross-country automobile driver, and she used this kind of skill to get her in, and she specialised in stunts like the death dive. Oh, nobody wants to do a death dive. I'll let you imagine that. Yeah. (laughs) So she wouldn't have been able to do that once those restrictions on altitude came in. There was also Marie Marving, and she was a woman who started her career as a train driver. She was a steamboat captain, a mountain climber, and she asked to pilot a fighter plane in the war. And when she was refused, she disguised herself as a man and fought in the trenches. Fuck yeah! So I feel like we should do an episode on her. A whole episode on her, and also steamboat captain. Hello. I know. (laughs) She's got it. She's ticking all the boxes. That's so good. She also won the Femina Cup, which was a competition that had just recently been established in 1909. By like a tampon company? (laughs) Well, it was for French female pilots. So I feel like the Femina is a French name. (laughs) It sounds like a really like standard female hygiene company. The Femina Cup. (laughs) It's proudly sponsored Get your Femina Cup. Femina lady products. That's right. Now you no longer need to bleed all over yourself when you're doing a barrel roll. When you're flying upside down. Do you always get period blood on yourself? Use Femina. All right. Anyway. Well, speaking of the Femina Cup, the first woman, because this is 1910, she was the second woman to win it, Marie. Uh, the first woman to win the Femina Cup was Helene de Tretreux. <laughs> I'm de sorry, Tretreux. now it just now it is it's just a cup filled with tampons. That's what you win. Um, uh, but it wouldn't be made out of like that plasticky stuff that's easy to get in, you know. <laughs> like if it's just an actual cup. That's what they gave you back then. You just had an actual cup and you just, just had to a, jam it, was it a in. a menstrual cup, yeah. Yeah, you just had to jam that in. Yeah. Okay, well, the first woman to do that was uh, (laughs) Helene Dutroux. She was also known as Girl Hawk. And she was a Belgian woman who was also a stunt cyclist, a stunt driver, and a racing driver, and a wartime ambulance driver. Oh, bloody hell. I know. Episodes in all these women. I've got one more. I've got one oh, more because I want to tell you a little bit more about Harriet Quimby. Remember, yes. she was you another of Coleman's heroines. Mm-hmm. She became a pilot because when she she was a journalist and so in her role as a writer, she noticed that no women were billed in the 1910 New York Air Meet. And so she was like, there's no women billed in this meet. I shall be the woman that ah. is billed in this meet. And so she just decided to learn to fly so that she could represent. And she was the first woman to fly across the English Channel. Oh, really? Wow. And she, like so many other of these women, mm-hmm. crashed before thousands of spectators during a stunt flight. So sadly, most of these women did not live long lives, but my God, did they live <laughs> fucking outrageously brave, astounding lives. Like when I read this list of women, I was like, what the fuck? Oh my God. Like 
Wow, imagine being into the 1910s and you're a mountaineer and you're a stunt driver and you're a racer and then you, I don't know. And you're a steamboat captain, don't forget yeah. that. I think that's my favourite, <laughs> steamboat captain. <laughs> so so I think uh, we could do episodes on all of them, but that's the highlight reel. So Bessie Coleman is not, well, she's in good company, let's yeah. say. Yeah. Okay, so let's come back to Bessie Coleman now. So she's come back to the U.S., Yep. This is what she's going to do. And she made her debut at the Checkerboard Field in Chicago on Labor Day 1922. And I do believe that it's just been Labor Day in the US. So if you're in the US, happy Labor Day. It's the 98th anniversary of Bessie Coleman's debut. Hey. And it was the first public flight of a black female pilot in the US. So she took off to the sounds of the American National Anthem. She donned this kind of military-esque uniform, which Mm. she often did. She kind Mm -hmm. of gained this reputation for dressing as though she was in the military. But, of course, it's not a real military uniform because she's not allowed to do that, being not in the military. And she was presented with a bouquet of flowers by Edison McVeigh, who was another black pilot, a man. And so for this largely African-American audience, there was this real sense of black pride and word spread and so did she. So soon she was performing barnstorming shows across the country. And she became very famous for a couple of stunts in particular. So for wing walking, you know, strutting along the wings of the plane while it's in flight and for parachuting out of the plane while a co-pilot took control. And she became very famous very quickly, which I think is not surprising, not only given what she was doing, but who was doing it. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, she was, let's be honest, a bit of an anomaly, but she was also young and she was seen as being very glamorous. She was beautiful. The press lauded her and saw her as, saw her successes as proof of the inevitability and power of flight, right? Mm. That take this young woman, this glamorous young Bessie Coleman, if she can fly, this sort of proves that flight is going to change the world. And it, I mean, it has yeah, (laughs) really, but they were more concerned because I guess at the time, because aviation was still so new, the papers were really interested in like the first this, the you know, yeah. the first crossing of That's the English right. Channel, the first yeah. crossing of the Atlantic. And like those races to do it as well. Like yes. those sort of competitions that were happening where somebody would claim that they were going to be the first person to do it and then somebody mm-hmm. else would be like, no, I'm going to be the first person to do it. And yeah. that sort of constant back and forth. And so she actually kind of ended up in this category. She's a first, yeah. you know, she's the first black woman to fly a plane. And so she was... I guess spun that way in the in the mainstream white press yeah. as opposed to being seen as representing the capabilities of black women, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It's more the yeah, focus is on the Yeah, it's more that kind of like, first. oh, the exception to the rule rather mm. than actually just proving that, you know, anyone's the same as anybody yeah, if else. if you're given the opportunity, maybe can. anyone can. It's, yeah, maybe exactly. it's not capabilities but lack of opportunity that actually yeah. causes these discrepancies. For the black press, however... Things were a little bit different. She wasn't just this, you know, first one in a series of firsts. Her success was really political and really significant Mm -hmm. politically. And remember, of course, her career was financed initially by Robert Abbott, the owner of the Chicago Defender. Um, So he was very invested in her exploits. 
And the black press gave her the nickname Queen Bess and the Bird Woman. And they hoped that through the combination of her bravery and her success and her attractiveness, (laughs) let's, you know, let's never put that aside, she would become this sort of poster woman for the campaign to, I guess, get rid of a lot of very negative and terrible black stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly so because after she arrived back in the US, it was only four months since the Tulsa race riots. So I don't know if you know much about the Tulsa Uh, race riots. Have we talked about them before? I feel like we have. Yeah, we've we've kind of touched on it. But the Tulsa race, well, it's really the Tulsa race massacre, really, actually, is what we should call it, (sighs) led to, I I mean, it was huge violence by mobs of white people against black residences and businesses in Tulsa. It's considered one of the worst incidences of racial violence in American history. Mm. It led to, I mean, there was 36 deaths maybe, Mm. but it could be as many as 150 to 200 black deaths. Because no one's reporting it properly. No, no. No. So these obviously are hugely significant very, very much mm. in the public consciousness in the in the same way that I guess today the legacy of it's not even a legacy because again it's only been a few months yeah. since yeah. George Floyd, yeah. but the ramifications of that are still so very, very present in our lives. So I guess it's the same thing, right? She's come home to the same environment, mm. but really significantly in the Tulsa race massacre planes were used to monitor and watch black people's movements and apparently they were used as weapons. Black people were shot at from planes. And so this caused black activists, I guess, to become quite aware of how planes could be used as weapons and could be used to carry out surveillance. Mm. And so having a black pilot kind of signified how this kind of technology could be used to help empower black yeah. people. Yeah. And this is obviously, <laughs> we don't really need to say, I don't think if you've listened to any of, a lot of our previous episodes, we've really have been in this time and place before with the 1920s in the US, the rise of the KKK, Harlem Renaissance is taking off over in New York, the great migration from the South to the North. And so this is very much the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I suppose. So for Coleman, this was significant and she was seen as a political figure, whether she wanted to be or not, but she did and she did kind of lean into this. And she very much knew how to play on the publicity that she was given. She wasn't shy at all. And she visited newspaper offices, for example, to distribute her own press releases, her own oh, photographs. That's great. And she also shared like screen uh, newsreel footage from her flights in Europe. So she's just like doing early social media, essentially. Yeah, she is. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She's like, hey, have you seen me? Here's my, here's a picture of me with my plane. Here's in my, my uniform. selfie with my yeah. plane. Yeah. Yep. I will be flying this weekend, so make sure you write about me. Because she wanted to get, you know, she actually, yes, there was a lot of, I guess it seems like a lot of self-promotion here, but she really did also want to, uh, well, she saw aviation as a way to empower black folk in America. So Coleman, I guess, has this sort of double status, double other status Mm. of being both black and female. And within both of these groups, 
whether you're black or whether you're female as a pilot, you're kind of unable to separate yourself from your entire gender or race. So I guess what I mean is like, if you're a female pilot, you're seen as representing all women. If you're a black pilot, you represent all black people. So there's a lot of pressure. And as Amy Bix writes, and I'll link to this article in the show notes, it's really great. For black folks interested in aviation, it would prove impossible to separate their individual aspirations and achievements from their communities, broader mm. political, economic and social conflicts. Yeah. And I think that's true of so many professions of the time, you know. That's true of not just aviation, that's true of mm. Mm. It's like entertainers, there's musicians, a first, really. Yeah. Like pretty much any industry you want to talk about, you do become, yeah, like your racial identity or your gender become as important, if not more important, than what you're actually doing. Yeah. And yeah, I guess the kind of questions that you're asked by the press and things like that, they bring you back to that soul identity. Yeah. You know, you, exactly. you can't just be yourself and fly. You have to be. And I guess that also puts you in a position where you have to be a model. You have to be a role model because, again, you are representing everybody. You don't get the luxury of making mistakes because that's going to reflect not just on you but on everybody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I guess one opportunity that I think does represent the way that Coleman maybe recognised the importance of her place as perhaps a role model and a political figure is that so this film was put forward based on her life mm-hmm. and Coleman was to play the lead. So she was to play herself. Yeah, she was to play herself. In awesome. her own <laughs> biopic. <laughs> However, great. and she, like, she was really excited about this, but when she read the script, uh, she realised that the depiction of her childhood was really demeaning. Mm. So they really played into this idea of the poverty-stricken black childhood on the plantation kind of whole Mm -hmm. thing and she pulled the plug she didn't want any part of it she said she didn't want any part in any uncle tom stuff yeah yeah and um so doris rich the author of the biography queen bess daredevil aviator writes clearly bessie's walking off the movie set was a statement of principle Opportunistic though she was about her career, she was never an opportunist about race. She had no intention of perpetuating the derogatory image most whites had of most blacks. Mm. Mm-hmm. And instead, she turned her attention to her desire to open an African-American flight school. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, you know, white flight schools won't open their doors to black people. So... Hey, so what do you do? You make your own. Can't, yeah, that's right. Start Just your do own. Do it yourself. She was entrepreneurial. But she needed money for this. And while she was successful, she wasn't like raking in the money. Well, because I guess, I mean, like how many people are in the position to sign up for that school as well? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> but I guess she also needed a lot of capital to get started though because she needed to buy a bunch of planes. You know, she needs planes, she needs land, you know, she needs somewhere to store these planes. So she needs a lot of land for them to practice on. It's a huge upfront kind of capital investment. And then, like you said, she needs students to be able to kind of keep it running. So it was going to be a challenge. So she knew she would probably need to move more into commercial aviation to help her earn the money for this. So she came up with the idea of doing sponsorships. 
So she would drop leaflets from her plane, oh. appear in commercials and kind of become a brand spokeswoman for whoever wanted her to advertise their product. Yeah. And this had worked for other pilots. However, it had worked for white pilots. Oh, no. So despite her fame, her success, she and like I said, she really was seen as glamorous. She really was seen as being like, you know, young and kind of fabulous and brave, she was still a black woman who companies didn't want as their spokesperson. Wow. That's a really interesting one. Mm. At the same time, you would sort of think that surely somebody would think that the air quotes, that the novelty of that Mm. would be worth their money. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that kind of playing into that. Well, I mean, she still (sighs) suffered a lot of racism like For example, when she was traveling, which she did a lot to appear in different air shows and exhibitions, she had to plan her travels knowing where Jim Crow policies were. Yeah. Yeah. And avoid those places. Um, She also outright refused to appear at exhibitions where African-Americans were not allowed or where segregation policies existed. Mm. So, yeah, despite her fame and her success, she, I mean, obviously encountered this kind of racism and prejudice everywhere yeah. she yeah. went, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why she wasn't able to get that capital for her school as, you know, quickly as as she would have liked, mm. I suppose. So did she manage to open the school in the end? I'll tell you the story. Okay, tell me the story. Okay. <laughs> so in 1923, she suffered a crash. Uh-oh. Her Jenny stalled and she ended up with fractured ribs, a broken leg and a wrecked plane. So while she recovered physically and she wasn't shy in letting her supporters know that she would be flying again as soon as she could walk, Hmm. she did suffer even more financially because now she's also lost her plane and she didn't really have the capital or the connections to get herself another one. Remember, because she had trained in France, she didn't have a lot of the same networks in the US that other pilots Mm -hmm. had and so she couldn't just sort of tap people on the shoulder and be like, hey, you got a cheap second-hand plane going because I guess she was a little bit more of an outsider. But she kept telling everyone the flight school's coming, the school's coming, and she reportedly insisted that she had purchased several planes for this school, which according to the press or probably what she leaked to the press was sort of continuously on the precipice of becoming a reality. Mm. But in actual reality, she was struggling. Um, she had to keep borrowing planes for her flights and she wasn't able to make consistent bookings. She also started selling rides, though, as a passenger in her plane okay. to, you know, particularly brave souls. And this was, yes, it was a way to make some extra money, but she was particularly interested in sharing the experience of flying with people of color. And of course, this is again, very political. She also started to give lectures. The first was a series in Texas, her home state and across the South. And she spoke particularly about how aviation offered an opportunity for black progress, for new employment, a chance to disprove stereotypes and to elevate black prospects in society and she spoke in town halls in churches in schools and her flying school played a very big role in this vision Mm. but ah here we go alicia are you ready for this part of the story i feel like the flying school is just not gonna happen it's not gonna happen the way that we wanted to no because 
unfortunately. And I think if we've taken anything from my list of groundbreaking female aviators mm. earlier, we kind of know where this story is going. Oh, no. So she had started to get it together and oh. she saved enough money to buy an old Jenny. And no. she was due. No, no, don't go in it. No, don't go in the old Jenny. Don't You're making do me it. feel uncomfortable to even tell the story because we all know what's going to happen. Oh, it's God. just inevitable. It's coming. It's coming. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it's coming, but it is. Okay. She was due to fly in an exhibition to benefit the Negro Welfare League in Jacksonville, Florida in April 1926. So she had a mechanic, William Wills, to fly it out from Texas. The plane was not in great condition. And Wills had to make several stops on the way because it was poorly maintained. But he arrived safely. Even still, Coleman's family were concerned and they didn't really want her to fly. Mm-hmm. And they warned her, please don't fly. Yeah. This plane is maybe not great. Yeah. But I guess maybe Coleman was just so happy to have a plane that she did, but she took it. She thought she better take it out on a test flight first. She also she needed to kind of get up in the air and determine where she would make her parachute jump from. And so she and Wills went up together. Wills was flying. She was in the back looking over the sides so she could get a lay of the land, so she could figure out her position and where she was going to do her stunt. Suddenly, mm-hmm. the plane nosedived and it flipped. <gasps> and Coleman, because she had been looking over the side. She wasn't wearing a seatbelt and she was thrown from the plane at 2,000 feet. Wills tried to get the plane under control, but he couldn't. It dived and crashed into the top of a tree. John T. Betch, who was Coleman's publicity manager, he rushed to the plane and to calm his nerves, he lit a cigarette, which caused the (gasps) gasoline fumes coming from the plane to ignite. So it exploded killing wills oh my god yeah so authorities found that a wrench had fallen into the engine and that is what jammed it so yeah coleman obviously did not survive this crash and she died at just 34 years old holy crap oh that's awful yeah i think what's also awful is the fact that the mainstream press gave more attention to Will's death than to Coleman's because he was a white man. What? And yeah, I know. <laughs> and some even speculated that Will's or others had actually sabotaged the plane. But this was kind of quickly put to rest. But he's just the mechanic. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. She's the star. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's horrible that he died too. Like, it's horrible yeah, that anybody died. I know, died, but, but she's like, Bessie Coleman. Like, that yeah. seems very strange. I know. It's 1926, Alicia, in mm. Jacksonville, Florida. So, mm. yeah. The black press, however, they gave her quite a send off. And she actually had several memorial services. There were two memorial services in Florida, one in Jacksonville and one in Orlando. And then apparently, 10,000 people came to her funeral in Chicago, wow. which was led by Ida B. Wells. Oh, uh, wow. And people waited for hours to walk past her casket and pay their respects. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. Ida B. Wells at Bessie Coleman's funeral, yeah. like given a, I don't know if she gave a eulogy or something, but I, I assume that's what they meant mean when they say led by Ida B. Wells. 
And Coleman is buried in the Lincoln Cemetery in Blue Island, Illinois. Wow. Yeah. So that was a depressing ending, Lauren. Well, I want to lift it back up a little bit, though. Yes, okay. please. So, but first, we're going to stay down just for a little oh, bit longer. For God's sake. Unfortunately, despite breaking through one of the most incredible glass ceilings, and we could say she kind of literally flew th- straight through <laughs> it, her legacy didn't actually really lead to much change. For a little while, it Mm. remained very difficult for black pilots. Willa Brown, for example, a black woman who earned her license in 1937, she set up her own flight school outside the Chicago city limits due to segregation policies. So, yes, she was able to set up her own school, but she had to do it outside of Mm. the city in order to navigate the racial prejudices that existed at the time. And 1937, that's still Uh quite... Oh, a long time after Bessie. Well, I guess 10, 11 years after Bessie Coleman had died, yeah. Black pilots were also barred from flight training in the military until World War II um, Mm. when the first black air corp, the Tuskegee Airmen, was established and Coleman was apparently their muse, Mm. so that's nice. However, one person who went on to live up to Coleman's legacy was William Powell, He was one of the first black men in the U.S. to earn his pilot's license in 1928, and he went on to establish the Bessie Coleman Aero Club and the first aviation school for African-Americans in her honour. So it did happen eventually. It did happen, kind of. It wasn't quite the way. I'm sure that Coleman would have loved to have been there to open the school, you know, on her own or with Powell, but it did happen. The school did open. It's there. And today, the Bessie Coleman Foundation in Washington continues to provide support for black pilots, Uh, which is important because just 7% of pilots in the U.S. are women and fewer than 1% of pilots are black women. So it is still an incredibly underrepresented profession. A lot of gender imbalances yeah. in aviation. But there are foundations like Sisters of the Skies, which is an industry advocacy kind of group to help mentor black women to become pilots and to become okay. involved in yeah. aviation. So mm-hmm. there are these sorts of foundations that exist to hopefully yeah. help make things a little bit more <laughs> balanced in the future. But there's a long, long way to go still. So, yeah. yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like it's amazing to think essentially it's like a hundred years later. Literally. And yeah, there's still that disparity, still yeah. such an enormous disparity like that. Yeah, absolutely. Holy shit. Oh, we talk about this all the time, like <laughs> how our stories are, you know, historical in nature. Yeah. But <laughs> and it feels like more and more recently they just feel permanently relevant. They do, <laughs> like, don't they? It just yeah. feels like nothing changes. It genuinely feels like nothing <laughs> changes. Fucking hell. Yeah. Oh, well. That's the story of Bessie Coleman. I think she's pretty rad. I think yeah. she's great. It's Absolutely. a cool story and I hope you enjoyed it, even though it has a sad ending. I did. Ending. I enjoyed it all except for that ending bit, mm-hmm. which was not enjoyable at all. That was actually really quite horrible. Yeah. But also, like, as you said, though, that list of all of those other women too. Yeah, I know. Like, I was thrilled amazing. to discover that list. We'll have to do a deep dive into some yep. of those ladies as well in the near For future. For sure. Who knows? Maybe next season we will get there. 
A second aviatrix, perhaps. Who can say? We'll try to find some more trickses, maybe a smuggler tricks if we can. (laughs) I feel like in a piratical sense we'd be able to find one or two. True. Maybe. Piratrix. (laughs) Anyway, let's stop doing that. Well, thank you so much for taking us on that journey, on that flight. Kind of a literal journey. Into the skies. Adventure. Yeah. And um, we all look forward to a time in the future when maybe we can all get back on a fart box and, and go somewhere. <laughs> Through the skies. Maybe, maybe. Getting germs all over us. Mm-hmm. Maybe, well, maybe we should just take a return to like steamliners. Maybe yes, the... I would love to travel by steamliner. I feel like that would possibly, it, would, that would be better for the environment, would it? I absolutely. Know. Oh, yeah. I say absolutely as though I know for sure I don't. Probably. Maybe. Possibly. We should look into that. We should okay. look into that. All right. Yeah. yeah. We'll run the Surely signs. it can't be worse than all those no. planes. True. Yeah. Anyway, so that's actually something good that might also come out of the <laughs> lack of flights that are happening at the moment. Yeah. You know, perhaps it could aid our environment. But anyway, we're, that's not, I've gone down a tangent now. <laughs> um, so I don't actually think You don't know I where know. we're going next time? No. I thought maybe we might return to the land of fairy tales and such, Ooh. but we'll... We'll We've see. had some requests for some more fairy tale stories since the Baba Yaga episode. So, yeah, well, we might go there again, maybe. We'll cool. see. Sounds yeah, good. Possibly. But no promises. no promises. No promises. Actually, I think I may do a folkloric mythological figure myself for Patreon this month. So Ooh. if you're not on Patreon, join us as little as $2 a month because I am going into the world of Finnish mythology <gasps> yes. and folklore. Fabulous. And we're going to talk about some a wicked queen. Fuck yes. yes. Oh, my God. It's already Patreon time again. It is. The months fly by. <laughs> I just tick by. Yep. And, of course, you can get that Patreon content for as little as $2. That's nothing. And you can find a bunch of whole range of extra episodes actually we've got quite a backup now on patreon of extra content there's a so lot there check it out yeah yeah it's quite a lot there and of course if you'd like to get your mitts on some deviant women merchandise then you can find some at our etsy store we are still only shipping in australia at the moment because of all of the flights <laughs> that don't happen anymore <laughs> and how expensive it is to ship things internationally at the moment but hopefully we will be back to international shipping again in the next couple of months we'll just keep our fingers crossed Mm -hmm. and if you can't afford to support us financially that's totally fine but you can hopefully leave us a review on itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts spread the word tell your friends that would be great and as always we'll have to say a very big thank you to our sound guy brendan davies and to india hui for the music and to dan our executive producer and we will see you all again in another fortnight Mid-September, it'll be springtime properly or autumn if you're in the uh, northern hemisphere. Enjoy the fabulous changing of seasons. We will see you very soon. Goodbye. See ya.